We happen to be in Genesis chapter 12 tonight. And uh, if I had handpicked a passage for what's going on in our world, uh, this would have certainly been a good one. Uh, but we're going to take the first nine verses. And so if you'd turn to Genesis chapter 12, we get introduced to the first patriarch, to Abram. And along with it, four basic things that are going to happen in these nine verses. And those four things are the call of Abraham. Abraham is called by God. Uh, He's then going to be given the glimpse of a covenant that will come to him when we get to chapter 17 and be explained in detail there. But we get the basic promise of that covenant tonight, and that's one of the really important things. Then we see Abraham's compromise. As I often remind you, we're supposed to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And sometimes we hear the word of the Lord, we even begin to do it, but then the world creeps in and we have a tendency to compromise. Abraham's going to do that almost immediately. And then finally, we see Abram actually committing himself fully to the things of God. And so these four things in these nine verses, we'll see them tonight. But probably most of you know that one of the things that our president, President Trump, did when he first got into office was he announced that Jerusalem was the eternal capital of the nation Israel. And he made a promise to move our embassy from where all embassies are, generally speaking, uh, in Israel, which is Tel Aviv, along Embassy Row, right along the edge of the coastline on the Mediterranean Sea, and to move it to Jerusalem. The moment he did that, there was an outcry um, by the Palestinian authority that that would be met with riots and that there was no way that was going to happen. There are several things that happened when Israel became a nation. And for those of you that are students of history, uh, we are on the eve. Actually, it is already this day tomorrow, that May 14, 1948, 70 years ago tonight. Israel became a nation. They had been displaced for almost 2,000 years. They came back into the land. The very next day, the Palestinians in the region announced what they call the Nakba, the great catastrophe, because they were being forced out of their land. The only problem was that the lie, because they not only weren't forced out of their land, They were invited to stay. As that happened, within less than two weeks, war was declared. The Arab nations of the world came against Israel. They fought a war of independence literally from the time of their declaration of independence. And the next important date that came along was 1967, the Six-Day War. Israel regains the Temple Mount and all of Jerusalem. In order to keep peace, they give East Jerusalem back to Jordanian control, and they have maintained Jerusalem proper as their capital ever since. So we have the 70-year anniversary of the founding of the nation. We have the 50-year anniversary of the retaking of Jerusalem, and we have the United States of America opening its embassy in about nine hours in downtown Jerusalem, marking the first, which will be followed by the embassy of Guatemala and the embassy of Paraguay. And so it is a very volatile time in the land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob which God declared was their land, it belonged to him, but he was giving it in perpetuity to the Jewish people as an inheritance, and it belongs to them. We get to the initial stages of that promise in our passage tonight, and so keep your eyes fixed on Israel in the next 24 hours or so. Uh, There are a lot of things going on in the world that may well unfold. Matter of fact, I would suggest you keep your spiritual bags packed because the Lord may just come for his church. Uh, That's where we are in the timeline. These events happened some 
4,000 years ago, 2000 BC roughly. Uh, and so as these events unfold, we are in the 7,000th year. And in essence, we've entered into that seventh millennia that man has been here on this planet. And so it is a wonderful night to be a believer in Christ Jesus or the Jewish Messiah. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. And God, what you said and you promised, you will cause to come to pass. And Father, we believe what your word declares about the land that is the land of milk and honey, the land of Abraham, the land that will be given to Abram in this passage tonight. And we pray that you would help us to always pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we do tonight. We ask for your angels to set guard as the military has been called up, as there are extra troops all over the city. Uh, Lord, as there's riots that are already ensuing, as there's those signs being carried around uh, by many people saying the exact opposite of the truth, that Al-Quds, Jerusalem, belongs to the Muslims. It belongs to your people, Israel. Uh, You've given it to them, Lord. That's your promise. It is not up to us to negotiate a settlement. And so we ask you tonight to speak to us through your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 12 And you remember the backstory that we finished last time. They were supposed to go immediately to Canaan. They had been given that promise, and they stop in Haran. And so this entire journey, which I'll show you in a moment on a map, is a little over 1,000 miles. So they go 600 miles into what would be modern-day western Turkey or eastern Syria to the city of Haran, and they stop there. And it will be there that Abram's father, Terah, will actually die. And so we pick up the story. And now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house. That's Terah's house. It's like it's time to go. You've been here in this compromised condition. Uh, You're beginning to see the effects of living next to pagan idolaters We as believers and the Jewish people, as God's chosen people, have been called out. That's what it means to be a saint, to be one separated unto the things of God, to be set apart for God's purposes. And so Abram is the first family after the fall and after the Tower of Babel to be actually told, look, I'm going to send you someplace. And now the beginning of that promise comes into view for us. I'm going to take you from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And the word show there is in the future tense. He's going to ask Abram to take a journey of faith. He says, I'll show you. You take the first step and I will guide you along the way and I'll tell you how to get there. But I'm not going to give you all the the picture of this until a little bit later and we'll see it when we get to chapter 17. So Abram starts this journey. He stops in Haran with his family. He, he begins to say, well, this is kind of nice. We're here along the Euphrates River. Uh, it's fertile here. We can farm here. We can have our herds here. And, and he even amasses, in essence, a following, and his family uh, gains friends and influence in the region. And verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. Notice what it says. I, I will make you a great nation. A great people is another word that you could translate there. He is going to be made into something that he is not. He's not only not a nation, uh, he doesn't actually even have any children. And yet God makes him a promise. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. At this stage, Abram is not only not great, he's anything but great. Uh, He's down on the lower rungs of society, um, he, he has really not much to show for his life, but he's got a promise from God. And you shall be a blessing. And notice what it says, and I think this is the main reason, if you want a reason why we ought to be very concerned about how our nation treats the nation Israel. 
I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course we know, because we know the story of Messiah, Messiah is going to come from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A Messiah is of his loins, in other words. But he says very clearly, I will bless those who bless you. That means to bless that nation that is going to come forth from Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And when you take a look at the nation Israel, the incredible disproportionate nature uh, of the inventiveness, the intelligence, Nobel Prize winners, monumental technological leaps. The new Silicon Valley is not here in California. It's actually in Herzliya in Israel. Microsoft has moved there. Apple has moved there. The nation is, nation is blossoming, and all you have to do is travel across the border into Jordan, into Lebanon, into the Gaza Strip, into Egypt, and you can see that God has blessed the nation Israel in the land. And contrary to that, you can see that God has not blessed those nations that have come against Israel. It is as stark as night and day. It is unbelievably different. All one has to do is drive through the Hula Valley and get to the border of Lebanon. The same exact geology, the same exact river, uh, the same exact topography. And as soon as you cross over into Lebanon, uh, you, you find a land that is not beautiful. You go into Israel... It is truly the land flowing with milk and honey. The Hula Valley is completely planted with every type of fruit and vegetable you can imagine. And just a mile away. God said, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. It is never a good thing to be against the nation Israel. Because God is for them. And he will be so forever. He made a perpetual covenant with them. And it is not conditioned upon Israel keeping its end of the bargain. It's one of the reasons that Israel has gone through so many different cycles of pain. As they have been disobedient, the Lord has chastened those whom he loves. He's allowed them to be dispersed. But make no mistake, the chosen people, Israel, are still God's chosen people. And so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And the people whom they had acquired in Haran... And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan. So they traveled first 600 miles. They sojourned and stayed there. They're now going to make that last 400-mile journey, which would have taken them through the rest of what's left of Turkey, modern Turkey, through all of what is known to us as Syria, modern-day Syria, which at the time would eventually be inhabited by the Assyrians. And so that area of the world, down through what we would call today uh, part of southern Lebanon, and then descending down into the land of Canaan, and eventually settling in Shechem, which is modern-day Nablus. And so here comes this journey. And they had gathered and they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land... To the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And so we see that the land was already inhabited. And we're going to find out very readily that the land was inhabited with people who did not like the fact that God had given the land to Abram. And there will be battles from day one. 
And notice how it continues on. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land, please mark that, to your descendants, I will give this land. We're going to get a full description of the land, and it is far greater than the land that is currently occupied by the tiny nation Israel. Uh, Much larger. And in fact, when the land was divided up uh, shortly after the Second World War, first beginning with what was called the Palestinian Mandate, followed by the Balfour Mandate, of this land that eventually, that originally uh, included all of Lebanon and all of modern-day Syria, part of the Sinai Peninsula, all of Jordan, and all of what is Israel. That was originally the land that was going to be given to the Jewish people as the land of an inheritance, which, by the way, is still smaller than what God gave them. It was shrunk down bit after bit after bit after bit, and finally... This little tiny piece of land that is now modern day Israel. And when you travel with us as we go on a tour and you see exactly how tiny Israel is. So I've shared with you before, San Bernardino County just to the east of us is three times larger than the entire nation of Israel. Three times. And so this little tiny land, now occupied by the Jewish people, if you think God was kidding, then you have a problem with Scripture. God was not kidding. He gave the land to his people, who will eventually be identified through Jacob, who will then be called Israel and his twelve sons. To your descendants I will give this land. And notice the response of Abram. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, which strangely enough means house of God, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and with Ai which strangely enough means ruin. He pitched his tent between the house of God and ruin. On the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. And so Abram journeyed going on still towards the south. So this incredible picture of this initial journey that Abram takes from Haran to the promised land of Canaan. Canaan is an interesting word, and when you try and study its entomology and, and, and look at what it actually means, the most common name uh, means merchant or, or subjection. It, it literally means uh, a piece of business. In other words, it, you would think that it's like God sent them somewhere uh, to do something, but really God sent them somewhere to inherit something. This is your land, I'm giving it to you. But when you take this passage and you begin to realize all the things that are going on, the first thing that we see here uh, is the call of Abram. And as you look at this and, and you look at the journey, this is an incredibly difficult journey. They start all the way over in the Persian Gulf, nearly on the Gulf itself in Ur of Chaldees. And they begin to go up what is called the Fertile Crescent to the area that's directly between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Makes this journey, ultimately will leave the Tigris, but will eventually actually reconnect with the Euphrates in, in what would be to us today, western Turkey or eastern Syria. It's right on the border of those two countries. And many of the names that you see on that map are still the same today. And of course, you can travel today and, and plot this route, and you can actually go to the, the ziggurat of Ur. You can witness the remains of the gardens of Babylon. You can travel through this area. You can go to Nineveh, which is a city, if, if you remember your history, that Jonah was supposed to go to, amen, but he decided, nah, I'm not doing that because he'll get saved. And so this whole route is a route of faith. 
This is God speaking. Look, I'm going to do some things in these places. And it's interesting to me that when you look at where this military activity is, it's really still in the same region. And so the military strikes that were launched just two days ago, three days ago now, Israel has just said, look, enough. You, you cannot launch rockets at us anymore. We're not going to put up with it. Um, all of that is in this area that's been in conflict, that's been contested as to whether it belongs to God's people or someone else. And that someone else has been multiple different nations. This land has been in, inhabited by the Carthaginians, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. So seven different nations have, in essence, occupied the land around Israel, and every last one of them has, guess what? Come and gone. The moment that they lay hand to Israel, eventually God says, Mm-mm, those are my people. You've got to leave them alone. And so we need to take seriously the word of God. People say, oh, I don't understand why. You know, Israel causes an awful lot of problems for the rest of the world. No, the rest of the world causes an awful lot of problems for Israel. That's the real thing. Because like it or not, God put his stamp of approval on the Jewish people. And whether you agree or disagree politically or philosophically, uh, educationally, even morally or religiously, God's blessings upon the nation Israel are irrefutable. They cannot be recalled by man. And so God has his hand on this tiny little nation. And while we know in the last days that there will be enemies that will rise up and, and attack Israel, and actually they will be successful eventually, the Antichrist will come on the scene and make a peace treaty and a peace pact with those nations that have risen against Israel and then ultimately his true colors will come and then the end will come. And prior to that, the church is heading home. Amen? Amen. So keep your eyes on Israel. The, the hour is late. The clock is ticking. And it's an exciting time to be a believer. I love a, a you know, I, I just like to read some of the old guys, but I was reading through a couple of articles, and there was this whole series of articles, and they were not Christian articles, but they were written about Israel and, and how it exists in the world and why it's still there and how come it hasn't been wiped out. Uh, and there's been all kinds of things said and done. But in talking about it and looking at the structure of it, the famous playwright George Bernard Shaw was talking about the world and its response to how Israel seems to always exist, irregardless of what's done to it. And he said this, he said, if other planets are inhabited, they must be using the earth as their insane asylum. Because people keep trying to do the same thing over and over and over again. And as Einstein said, that's the mark of insanity when it doesn't work out. And it's never worked out. Irregardless of the odds, as we study through the rest of the Old Testament, as, as we watch nation after nation and people after people and powerful nation and powerful people uh, insanely overwhelmed by odds that are impossible for us to even imagine. You know, somebody was kind of debating whether the United States was the most powerful military nation on the earth. And I just looked at him and I, I kind of had to chuckle. I said, is that, is that a question? You know, are you actually asking something or are you just trying to make a point? And he said, well, you know, if, if Russia did this and China did that. And I said, let me, let me just clarify something for you. I said, if you don't believe that the United States is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, I, I said then you probably believe that Israel is going to be wiped out by Iran. And he said, well, why do you think that? I said, because you can look at the effects of what's happened with democracy being spread all over the face of the earth and what's happened. I said, can you name me one single country that's ever been taken over by the United States of America? I said, well, no. 
So that's because that's not what we do. We don't take other people's land. We are liberators. As poorly as we do that at times. I said, now on the flip side of that, everybody's been after Israel and nobody's been successful. God's word speaks for itself. This account in the book of Genesis is an account up to this point of the failure of mankind, isn't it? Think about it. Think what we've read through already. The first man, the first woman, what do they do? They're around for eight minutes. They disobey God. Maybe nine, I don't know. They'll eventually be cast out of the garden. Cain murders his brother Abel, then he lies about it. This is the book of Genesis that we've studied thus far. Humanity becomes so corrupt that God says, I'm going to have to wipe everybody out but eight people. Then we get on the other side of being wiped out, everybody but eight people. And within one generation, a hundred years, man's back at it again, trying to build a tower to replace God. We don't don't really need him. Then you find Noah, who's this incredible patriarch that's lived a righteous life for half a millennia, for over 500 years, and now he turns into a drunk. God sends Terah out with his family. He says, I want you to go to Canaan. And he gets to some place that's nice. Got a little riverfront cottage. He says, well, I think I'll camp here. The story of man is the story of rebellion. And yet the story of God is the story of grace in response to that rebellion. Aren't you glad? Because I, I tell you, I'm glad. His mercy endures forever. It is new every morning. He does not give us what we have earned or deserved. Instead, he's gracious and kind to us. Mind-boggling. Because I know what I would have done each time I'm starting over. I'm God, I can make new people. Adam and Eve, I'm going to get some new ones. Everybody would know his family, I'm just making new people. And yet each time God tries to work with the failures of man, you ought to be really thankful that God is in the business of working with the failures of man. That he's a God of second chances and third chances and tenth chances and 10,000th chances and Lord knows how many millions of chances he's issued to humankind over the, over the centuries. And when you think about these things that went on before we reach this point as Abraham begins, Abram begins his journey, you've got disobedience, murder, deception, fornication, idolatry, drunkenness, nudity, rebellion. It sounds like if you read the paper today. Right? Pretty much the TV, isn't it? Kai and I are trying to figure out how you can actually, you know, edit everything on TV, including the commercials and the whole. It's like the best thing to do is just not watch. Because the whole thing is, it's this. Because of God's call and because of that obedient faith, because God is concerned about their salvation. Because God's at work in their lives, we see all of a sudden Abraham is called. And why is that? What happened? Paul kind of gives us a little insight in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which if you've been with us, we studied it already. But there in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, it says, For you see that you're calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. That God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's sending an obviously disadvantaged couple if you want to make a nation. When they start the journey, he's 75. Sarai's no spring chicken. They have no children. I'm going to make you a great nation. He's ultimately going to have a name that's the father of a multitude. You talk about a bummer start to that end. But God's the God of miracles. He he continues to use foolish things, weak things, to put to shame the things that are mighty, the base things of the world. 
Even the despised things God has chosen. You see, man looks on the outside, God looks on the inside. Man looks at achievement, God looks at faith. And that's the story of Abram's life. We're actually told in Acts chapter 7 that the glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham. And how that happened, we don't know, but we know this, that God spoke to him. And Paul would eventually write there in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so in this case, it was likely the audible voice. God just simply spoke into his heart. He said, this is how it's going to be, Abram. And he says, so I want you to get out of where you are. I want you to leave your father's house. You know, God sometimes tells us to leave very comfortable situations. Anybody experience that here? God asks us sometimes, when those situations are unhealthy spiritually for you, God sometimes will just simply tell you, it's time to get out. It's time to move. It's time to go. It's time to leave behind the things of this world. Because like it or not, we have been called to not be unequally yoked. We'll get to that as we, as we begin our study in 2 Corinthians. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You see, they had stopped in Haran. Uh, and they're, they're now digging into the society there, probably Mesopotamian society. And if that's the case, they were doing the things the Mesopotamians did. And that was not good. Including worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. What we would call the Zodiac. Very perverse society. They were not monotheistic. They didn't believe in the one true God. They were largely pantheistic. They believed that God was in every, everything. And anything could be a representation of God. But there are three things, really, that you can see in this passage. The reason that God called Abraham, it had nothing to do with how great Abram was. He was concerned about saving mankind again. God has always been concerned about our salvation. God has always been concerned about our salvation. He calls us so we can be saved. He talks to our hearts so that we know it's him. He speaks into our lives. We don't even sometimes recognize what he's saying or even understand what it is that he's saying to us. God's still busy calling us. It's like, hello, Jeff, it's me. God started that before I even knew who God was. I can look back with hindsight and realize when I was seven years old, sitting there on the steps of a Presbyterian church with a lady that still, I don't know her name, but I'm going to see her in heaven. I can guarantee you that. And she shared the gospel with me. And while it would be another seven, eight years before I would actually receive and believe god was calling and so god's calling abram he's saying come out so that you can go in and he called him to be a blessing and you can see this whole track really as you look at at hebrews chapter 11 and for sake of time tonight we won't go there but just read hebrews chapter 11 and you'll see these things as abraham walks by faith as Sarai walks by faith as those they died in faith and the faith of Abraham is in view in that chapter. In order for them to be a blessing, they had to have faith because there was nothing about their life that would have told you they were destined for greatness. They were like this homeless couple that was very aged and they're marching across a hostile area going into a land that already has people living in it and God... Can you imagine them showing up? Uh, God gave us your house. This is actually our land. And here's this elderly couple that, you know, kind of shows up with their cane. Uh, we're, we're here to take over. You talk about having to have faith. They had to have faith. He was growing that faith and causing them to walk in that faith. The second part of this is the covenant itself, and we only get a little glimpse of it here. Now, we don't see the whole thing. It's, that will all come later. But you can see it. I will make you a great nation, 
I'm going to show you a new land. There's some things here. I'm going to show you how to be a new man. I'm going to show you some new ways. And I'm going to bless people who are blessed by you. That, That when you are in this land and doing what I've called you to do, uh, I'm going to show you these things. I'm going to make you these things. I'm going to bless you in this way. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And really, it's kind of a picture of the missionary mandate of the church to some degree. Uh, we've been called into the world to be a blessing to the world. One of the things that we're supposed to do is take the faith that we ourselves have, the grace that we now walk in, the new life that we're walking in, and we're supposed to show that to other people. Abraham is the forerunner of that. This man, Abram, is, is got, he, he's got a little preview, if you will, of what it means to, to walk by faith and to experience the grace of God. And while Jesus has not yet come and he's going to wait until Jesus says it is finished, he's still living his life by faith. At, at the Tower of Babel, men said, well, we're going to do it. Let us do it. But to Abraham, God says, no, I'll do it, Abram. I'll take care of this. This is on me. You just need to go where I tell you to go. And so he makes this promise. He's going to show them this land. He's going to show them the nation that he will become. And he's going to bless the whole world through this elderly, childless couple. It's an incredible picture of how God can do anything with anybody if we will just simply walk by faith. But as is usual in our lives, they compromise. These first steps, notice verse 4, And so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken, and Lot went with him. Abram, 75 years old, when he departed. But as he departs, he kind of takes the first steps of the journey, but they're not really purposeful. He kind of lingers. He kind of wanders. And initially, when he got to Haran, instead of continuing right on his journey, he stalled. There was just a little bit of, of compromise. And that compromise, we're going to see, infected Lot. Lot is going to absolutely bear the consequences of them staying too long in Haran. For those of you that are here tonight and you are parents or grandparents, or maybe your parents that our parents yet to be. Maybe you haven't had children yet, but you're going to and you want to. Let me just speak into your life a little bit. The decisions you make will bear directly on those that you lead in your family. And if you linger in Haran, if you stay in places that God told you you need to get up and get out and go, and you stay there, Do not be surprised if your children, your grandchildren, suffer the consequences of you having shown them the way of life somewhere they're not supposed to be. Take it seriously. Abram brought some serious things into Lot's life, and we know because we know what happens to his family, and we'll get there very shortly. It's going to be a very painful experience because Lot is going to linger Lot is going to long for Sodom. He's going to be gazing, going, wow, you know, it's kind of nice over here. You know, this wasn't so bad. We kind of had it good. And it ends up being very, very, very costly. When you walk by faith, you learn to lean on God. And that means a whole bunch of things, but it certainly means that you lean on his word. That his word is what we have need of. I need to know what his word says. If I'm looking for an answer, the first place I go is God's word. If I can't find it there, maybe I'll seek some counsel. If I can't find it directly, if, if somehow there's something in my life that's not addressed in Scripture, then maybe I'll seek out somebody who has experience in that area, who loves the Lord. But I'm going to walk according to his word. I'm certainly going to try and grow into as much of Christ's character as I can. I want God's character alive in me. 
I want people to be able to say that that was how Jesus would handle that. That's how Jesus would have said that. We should have the character of Christ. And though Abram is going to stumble, he's going to stub his toe, he's not going to be perfect by any shake of the imagination, his goal is to be pleasing to God. A third thing is that Abram was seeking the will of God, and again, as imperfectly as he was doing it. He wasn't always successful, but he was looking to accomplish what God had asked him to do. That's why he went. That's how they got there. And so when he showed up in Shechem, he was doing the right thing. He was building an altar. saying, look, I'm going to worship you, God. You sent me here. I'll worship you here. And, of course, he has to do it all in God's power. There's no way that this elderly, childless couple is going to be successful unless God is in it. And so they needed God's power. They were leaning on these things, the word, the character of Christ, God's will, and God's power. And the fourth step in these verses is a commitment. When you look from verse 5 to 9, it says, Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions, all that they had gathered, the people whom they had acquired uh, in, in Haran. And he departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were there in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The first thing Abram did was commit himself to worshiping God. The first thing. Not the second thing, not the third thing, not a peripheral thing, the first, the foremost thing. Matter of fact, if you ever wanted to know where Abram was, just look for an altar. If you wanted to find Abram, look for an altar that was dedicated to the true and the living God. Look for a heart that was after God. Look for a man, if you knew nothing else about him, you would know that he loved God. He was completely committed to the things of the Lord. And this would not be an easy thing because his neighbors were pagans. His neighbors were heathens. His neighbors not only did not worship God, they did exactly the opposite. And I'm sure you can just see Abram sitting out there at his altar praying to the God of heaven. And they're over jumping up and down and worshiping cows and the sun and the moon and the stars. Worshiping themselves. All kinds of acts that we will find out about in the later chapters of this book. And yet God says, look, I, I want you to move in and I want you to move towards Bethel, the house of God. You, you can start out over there and you're ruined because that's the way the land is without me. But I want you to pitch your tent and I want you to be looking at the house of God and I want you to build an altar. It's been said that Really, three different types of people exist in the spiritual world. D.L. Moody coined it. Many have followed along, and I, I have a tendency to look at these things and say there's probably a few more, but these are the three main ones. Yeah, the intenders, people who intend to do great things for God. Their intentions are good, we might say. I'm sure you've met people like that. Oh, I intended to get involved in Bible study. I intended to come to church. I intended to pray. I intended to do devotions with my family. I intended to worship the Lord. I intended to dedicate myself to God. I intended to do a lot of things, but it stopped at the intention. And they never get very far, and they usually die in Haran. They may have even had good intention. 
but their intentions never accomplish a thing. And then like Lot, you have kind of the endeavorers, the people who kind of strike out a little bit. Well, I'm going to endeavor to get that done, but you know, if it doesn't quite happen, I think I'm going to fall back to my intending to do well. So they're a step further along, and they take a few steps, but they don't step very far. And never do they step out into places that are uncomfortable, costly. They refuse to pick up their cross and follow him. They kind of endeavor. You know, when somebody comes to me and they say, well, I endeavor to love my wife. I say, well, what does that mean? Are you actually doing it or are you just endeavoring to do it? Because there's a lot of people who endeavor and they never do anything. They start out and they buy one bouquet of flowers and it goes down from there. Don't be an endeavorer. That's what Lot was. And it's going to be very costly in his life. And then you have the performers, people who actually get it done, do something. Kind of the get her done folks. Like Jesus said it, that settles it, let's go do it. It's enough for me. God said it, that's all I need to hear. And whatever it is he said, that's what I'm going to do. But those people are the people who truly commit their lives to Christ. Truly do what God wants them to do. Truly have their future in God's hands. They're willing to obey. They're willing to listen to the commands of the Lord. And ultimately, they're the ones that receive what God has for them. So these three different types, you surely don't want to be an intender because you'll probably camp someplace that you're not supposed to be. You don't want to be an endeavorer because you're probably going to start things and never finish them. In that commitment, you want to be a performer. You want to get it done as best as you possibly can. Join God where he is at work and let him work in your life even further still. And so all of this is really a picture of the role of faith in our lives, and we'll finish with this. When you look at this passage, faith is going to bring you out. It's going to take you out from wherever you were. Behold, old things are passing away. Amen? It's going to bring you out. It's going to come out from among them, for my people are a holy people. Faith is going to bring you out of where you were, and it's going to take you someplace that you haven't been. And to that end, it will bring you in, just exactly as this passage says. It's going to bring you into a new place. You're going to put off and come out, and you're going to come in and become. You're going to put on. That's what faith does in our lives. And ultimately, just as we will see in the life of Abram, finally it will bring you through. It'll take you through the battles. It'll take you through the valleys. It'll move you through the things you never thought you could get through. And so to that end, God brings us out for a reason. And he brings us in with purpose. And he brings us through so he can use us. This is a picture of of God's life uh, in us, working out now into the world. These are the things that disciples do. You, you see, we kind of live in a world where we kind of want God and we want the world too. And we can't have it. Because God's a jealous God. He, he doesn't want to share us, basically, is the way you can look at it. He's called us to be different. And to that end, that makes us pilgrims and strangers. And so you see this in Abraham's life. He lives in a tent. And so if God tells him to move, he can move. The only thing that he builds wherever he is is an altar so he can always worship the Lord. But he's ready to go. And if he does move, he just builds another altar. 
So he's in this world, but he's not of this world. When people look at Abram, they go, oh, that's the crazy God worshiper dude. Oh, that we would be called crazy God worshiper people. Amen? That we would be known that way. And people will look at our life, man, there's something seriously weird. They don't care about the things of this world. They're not caught up in the same thing that everyone else is caught up in. They actually care about what God cares about. And I know where to find them. Every time I go by the church, the parking lot's packed. Because they're always worshiping God. Oh, that the Lord could say this about us. That he's brought us out to bring us in, to get us through. Amen? As we respond to that call by faith, the Lord is faithful. He who began that good work in you is faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He's given us a promise and he intends to keep it. And the shortest goal to the promised land is to do what he says. Amen? Would you stand? We're going to pray together. Worship team's going to come back out. Going to bring some of the pastors forward if you have a prayer need and you need somebody to pray with you. Amen? Take it light while you're here in this world. Hang on to things with a with an open hand and let God have everything that you have and everything that you are let him bring you out so he can bring you in so he can get us through and take us home amen father thank you tonight that you will get us home Lord help us to live lives of faith like Abram and Sarai God, would we have our eyes fixed on heaven? Would nothing move us from getting to where you have us today, from where we are, to where you want us to be? Lord, don't let us be those people who are intenders. Lord, don't let us be endeavorers. Let us be performers, Lord. Those who are doers of the word, not just hearers deceiving themselves. Father, thank you for your love for us, your kindness and goodness to us. Pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we go on our pilgrim's way, on our faith journey. Lord, get us home. In Jesus' name, amen.